The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just a hint on the program. Earnings, earnings, and more earnings. Big Tech highlights the week. Plus, Chair Jay Powell details the Fed's plan to continue fighting inflation. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at China's efforts to do more on the global stage. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking at the European response to the Israel-Hamas war. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker, and we begin today's program with companies opening their books. A big week for earnings with about a third of the S&P 500 reporting this coming week. Among the highlights, Google, Meta, and Amazon. And let's start right now with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Retail Analyst Poonam Goyal as she covers Amazon for us. Uh, Poonam, good to talk to you. Amazon reporting third quarter earnings in the coming week. Can you break down for us the, impart, uh, the important parts of Amazon? They're not just selling stuff online that then gets delivered to my front porch. No, they're not. They're doing a lot more than that. So when you think about Amazon, you clearly have their marketplace, which is Amazon.com, but they also have a big business known as AWS, which is their cloud business, which not only is a growing business, it's also Amazon's most profitable business, contributing to largely all its profit or most of its profits today. Those are the two big businesses inside Amazon. But within that, there's also a third business, which is now a $40-plus billion business. It is their advertising business, and that business continues to grow at a 20% plus clip. It also boasts high profit margins, which we think will be the third um, growth driver to the Amazon story, and a key one especially in the coming years as it scales that business even further. Yeah, you know, when I signed up for Prime, I got Prime Video, um, and... <laughs> <laughs> only because uh, I can't share somebody's Netflix account anymore. Are they going to switch to commercials on that? And is that really a, a a driving force for them? Well, it is. So right now their advertising business, the $40 billion roughly business that I talked about, is primarily driven by their retail business. So the add-on of these ads onto Prime Video is incremental. And remember, you have the option, right? You can choose the ad-free version and pay for that. Or you can take the ad version. So the clients will have um, an opportunity to decide what works for them. But given that they've added this new revenue stream for advertising, it's only going to help drive growth even faster. 
for the advertising segment of their business. You mentioned AWS. Um, how does generative AI, everybody's latching onto that, how does that figure into it? Yeah, generative AI is really something that Amazon is investing heavily in, just like the rest of the world, including tech companies and even retail companies. You know, it's, it's all about making sure that you can really use the data that you have hand at hand and you can implement solutions to make it less frictionless for the consumer and also provide capabilities to businesses for Amazon, which is key for AWS, to really grow their business in a way that they couldn't do it before, right? We've heard of AI for a very long time, for decades it's been around, but generative AI is truly game, it's a game changer. And our colleague Mandeep has written a whole piece on generative AI where, you know, they talk about just the growth in that industry and the investments that are going to come have already started to begin that's really going to help improve ROI across every facet of the organization, whether it's on the e-commerce side, whether it's in the back office, whether it's in marketing and advertising, I mean, you name it, it's going to implement every, it's going to have an impact on every part of your business. Oh, the Prime Day events. So what do they tell us? How did they go so far? They actually went really well. Um, You know, what we noticed over the Prime Day that just happened um, recently is, according to numbers that we've seen, sales were up about 6%. And that's pretty impressive, just given that we're in a period of time where the consumer, you know, could be stretched a little in terms of their pocketbooks because of the growing interest rates, the rising debt levels that we're seeing, consumer confidence is clearly you know, not where we would like it to be. So we do think that having a respectable mid-single-digit team based on numerator numbers is a good um, number, and it actually bodes well for the holiday season for Amazon. The desire for value is clearly front and center in the consumer's mind, and we saw that over Prime Day. Okay, so real quick, what do you expect from Amazon's results? I think the results will be good on the online side. We'll start to see mid-single-digit gains, which is an improvement from earlier this year when sales were down. I also think the cloud business will hold steady. Um, our analyst who covers the cloud business you know, thinks that the uptick that we wanted to see later this year won't come as soon as we expected, but the business will still hold steady at around a 12% clip. And next year is really when we'll start to see improvement in the cloud business where growth rates will begin to pick up. The longer-term opportunity for AWS remains very much intact with margins increasing and growth also increasing. All right, that's the preview of Amazon from Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Retail Analyst Poonam Goyal. Poonam, thanks very much. Appreciate it. And the other earnings we're keeping track of and previewing, Amazon and Meta Platforms. And to take a deeper dive into that, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh joins us. What's the overarching themes for all these companies? Well, so for Alphabet and Meta, clearly there is a read-through on ad spending, and it is tied to macro. So if uh, you know Tesla is saying macro is not looking good, that doesn't bode very well for ad spending. At the same time, these companies have much easier comps going into this quarter because the last four quarters weren't that great either. So my sense is given what we have heard so far, they should at least have an inline quarter or at least better than expected given uh, the easier comps I alluded to. And the ad pricing has gotten better from the data points that we have gathered so far. Yeah, we had uh, those bang-up results from Netflix. Does that uh, give us any indication what 
we can expect here? Yeah, so uh, actually uh, Alphabet has exposure to uh, YouTube, where which uh, is very similar to Netflix in terms of the subscription side of the business, as well as ads is much bigger. And what Netflix said last night was uh, they were able to raise prices without really causing churn, as well as they saw some lift in their ads business, albeit it's very small for Netflix, but clearly the read-through is YouTube numbers should look solid when Alphabet reports. And on the cloud side, another of Alphabet segments, the tailwinds are there. Generative AI investments should help Alphabet cloud segment actually to uh, post better than expected print. All right. With uh, with Poonam, we discussed generative AI. How does it apply here? I mean, specifically, give me a good example. So Alphabet has launched their own co-pilots uh, for their productivity suite. So these are subscription-based offerings, as well as the entire training of these large language models is done on the cloud. And Alphabet, we know Google Cloud is one of the most formidable players when it comes to generative AI training. What, what are large language models? Um, so in a nutshell, these are you know models that can do a lot of things, uh, you know, from uh, being a chatbot to doing language translations to uh, helping you with your searches. And really, uh, you know, with the chat GPT wave uh, catching on this year, uh, this has become a big market. In fact, we think it's going to be a trillion-dollar market over the next 10 years in terms of influencing how we use our software. This will be a feature in everything we interact with around uh, us, whether it's software, websites, apps. Yeah, every time I use uh, my free YouTube, uh, looking at videos on that, it asks me if I want to sign up for the paid subscription service. Is that really a driver, a lot of people going to that? I think so. So YouTube, just to give you some numbers, has a 2.7 billion monthly active user base. Compare that to Netflix, they reported 250 million subscribers. And out of that 2.7 billion for YouTube, they have about 80 to 90 million paid subscribers. And now they have launched YouTube TV. They are showing live sports content, the NFL Sunday ticket. So clearly, things are moving in their direction, and uh, the subscription revenue should come out pretty strong. What's specific to uh, Meta Platforms earnings are you looking at? The Reality Lab losses, they keep saying every time uh, the street models lower losses, they say we are still spending on Metaverse, and clearly uh, the I business- I still don't know what Metaverse is. Yes, so <laughs> they are, uh, they've just released the third version of their Quest uh, headset, and uh, they're still investing heavily in it. At the same time, I think Meta has turned around in the sense they're, they've uh, done some effective cost cutting as well as the ad side has rebounded. And uh, look, they are a formidable player in the large language models and generative AI space as well. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh. Mandeep, thanks a lot for stopping by. I appreciate it. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the future of the interest rates. We bring you a conversation with Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead of the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, reaction from Europe involving the conflict in the Middle East. But first, we're going to turn our attention to the economy. The Federal Reserve currently in its quiet period until November 3rd. But our David Weston caught up with the Fed chair, Jay Powell, right before that quiet period began and got his thoughts on the economy and interest rates. We all write down our estimates of a longer-run neutral rate every quarter in the summary of economic projections. And, and that's based on models. It's based on also looking out the window and, and including lags, thinking how are our current rates affecting the economy. So the, the evidence of your eyes is that the economy is, is handling much higher rates, at least for now, without difficulty. So notionally, that, that might tell you that, that the neutral rate has risen, or it may just tell you that we haven't had rates high enough for long enough. Uh, you're right, though, but uh, you know, you, you, you have, we have models for everything, we have formulas for everything. Ultimately, as a practitioner, mm-hmm. we have to you know, be focused on what the economy is telling us, even taking lags into account. What's it telling us? Does, does it feel like policy is too tight right now? I would have to say no. I think the evidence is not that a policy is too tight right now. Um, so, and, and we're at five, five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That was Jay Powell speaking with Bloomberg's David Weston late last week. And we're pleased to welcome David right now in the studio for more on his uh, interview with the chairman. My impression with uh, Powell's speech preceding you to the Economic Club of New York was that it was, and I'll use the phrase that uh, our interest rate strategist, Ira Jersey, used, kind of (laughs) wishy-washy. Is he a wishy-washy kind of guy? Well, I'm not sure he would embrace that description, but one man's wishy-washy may be another man's optionality. Uh, saying we don't know a lot of things right now, we have to be able to move in different directions. And he clearly is incremental. He wants to take it data point by data point, see what comes in, doesn't want to commit too early. He's not a a grand theorist. I think he would admit to that. Um, You know, I'm more than happy to have other people do my work for me and kick up my feet on the desk. Is Jay Powell able to kick up his feet uh, on his desk at the Federal Reserve in Washington as interest rates rise and the bond market might be doing some of the work for the Federal Reserve? Well, we talked to him about that specifically, uh, whether, in fact, particularly the raise in the yields on the longer end of the curve were really doing some of his work for him. And when pressed, he allowed us how, on the margin, as he put it, on the margin, it reduces some of the pressure to keep interest rates going up. At the same time, he thinks inflation is coming down, perhaps a little more slowly than we would have thought. It is coming down. At the same time, the economy, as you know, John, is just really charging ahead, uh, which is, I think, a conundrum. But he says, look, it's good news, at least so far. Yeah, you know, it's just like, I just can't believe the figures, especially when it comes to consumer spending. I suppose a lot of this is left over from the pandemic that we have pent up spending. Did he 
address that at all, the reasons behind why the economy, and especially the U.S. consumer, is just so darn strong at this point? He certainly said that there were more savings than they had understood. That was a surprise. They had more dry powder, if you will, to spend down for the consumer, that they've really kicked in. He also suggested that perhaps part of it is just a pent-up demand because we were cooped up for so long. And so we're coming out, whether it's travel or it's other experiences, to really spend money. He also suggested that, in fact, we will see some slowdown. Now, that's not necessarily a recession. I'm not saying that. But that we will see some slowdown probably as we get into 2024. Uh, credibility is so important at this juncture. And just to tell everybody, just to go back in time just a bit, it was a time when the United States dollar was backed up by gold, something really credible you could put your hands on. Then along came the Nixon administration, and they sort of gutted the Bretton Woods Agreement where there was a gold standard. And then you had the U.S. Central Bank had to come in, and that had to be the credible source to back everything up. That's kind of the history of why it's so important. Is Jay Powell, in your sense, a credible guy, and is the institution as we know it today a credible institution? Uh, probably one of the most important questions there is in the economy today, John. Uh, and I guess I would say time will tell. Thus far, I think he's been fine. One of the issues, though, I think, John, and I did ask him about this, is do you have as much control over the economy as we thought you did? There are some people who indicate, Larry Summers has said this to us, that because of the so-called terming out of the debt, both corporate and household, that is to say, when interest rates were zero or close to it, people took a lot longer-term debt. And as a result, when they raise interest rates now, a lot of people and corporations are not directly affected because they they got their money locked up for a while. Uh, and I asked, is that a real issue? He said he thinks they still have effect with respect to interest rates, but he allowed his how that is something of a change in the economy. They've got this target of 2% uh, inflation in the U.S. economy. David, I have no idea where that number came from. Are they really sticking to that, or can that sort of fluctuate? I, if, if memory serves, I think it came from New Zealand originally. I think yeah, the New Zealand I, Central Bank <laughs> came up with that, as I recall. And, and that's a good question. But, but I think a, uh, an important question is not, should it be 2%? But if they change it at this point, does it do more damage than good? There's this thing we call the the neutral rate, the, the rate that the Federal Reserve wants that would no longer be contractionary for the economy and would no longer stimulate the economy. Does he give any indication of does, does he have any idea where that should be? He calls it the long-term equilibrium rate. Uh, okay. That's what you're talking about. And some people call it R-star, right? That sort, of, that sort of number. And I asked him that flat out because back in 2020, you remember they changed their framework? And he said we, he thought that the, that equilibrium rate had come down to about 1.8 from about 2.5. I asked him where he thought it was today. He said he thought most people thought it was a, a little under 2. He's around 2%, he thinks, is what it is. What kind of a time frame, does he have a time frame for when we can see, number one, the uh, true effects of the previous hmm. policy tightening taking effect? I think it was Milton Friedman at uh, yeah. the University of Chicago who came up with the phrase, long and variable lags for yeah. monetary policy, i.e. the tightening. I brought that up with him quite specifically. I said, okay, long and variable, we understand that. How far are we through those long and variable lives? Are we 25%? Are we 50%? He said, nobody can know. He also said he thinks it's different than when Milton Friedman came up with that phrase because central banks now telegraph so much more. And so it affects financial conditions, which is a way of tightening policy without 
actually raising rates. So he said it may be different how long and variable they are, but he refused to take a commit. I'm basically, by the way, John, I said, how can you set monetary policy going forward if you don't have a sense of with your 25, 50, 75% way through? He said, no, we'll wait and see. Yeah, it used to be in the past where you wouldn't see an immediate reaction uh, in the markets at least. But with the added transparency from the Federal Reserve, you almost see it instantaneously in the markets. He addressed that as well? Well, the financial conditions uh, clearly are doing part of the work for him. And, and they very much are focused on financial conditions and the extent of tightening. And certainly, John, obviously, it came up with what's going on with bond yields because we've had real tightening with the 10 and the 30, what's happened with it. Uh, so, And he, he recognizes that's an important part of uh, how they try to influence monetary policy. Is uh, the transparency working for the Federal Reserve? I mean, you remember from uh, previous Fed chairman, you didn't know what the hell they were talking about <laughs> at times. But he's come back a little bit from that, right? At one point, it was all about forward guidance. And now he's a little more reluctant to give forward guidance. It's not like the Greenspan opacity, where you really, as you say, he'd go up to Congress and you had no idea what the man was saying. Uh, he certainly is much more transparent than that. You have to put that together, John, once again, with what you called wishy-washy, I said optionality. He's taking it one step at a time. We have to remember he is a lawyer, like I'm a lawyer, and, and listening to him and talking to him, he's a very smart man. And, you know, learned hand, the famous judge once said, if I get to write the facts in the opinion, you can write anything you want in the law because the facts will determine. I think my impression of Jay Powell, this is just me talking now, is that he is that kind of lawyer that he wants to take it fact by fact, and that will tell us where we're going. He doesn't come in with a Cartesian theory like Descartes, a theory of the case in advance. Well, that wasn't wishy-washy at all and very transparent. <laughs> David Weston, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to Asia and look at how China is trying to reinvigorate its role on the global stage. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. At the height of the Israel-Gaza conflict and China's economic slowdown, how is China trying to reinvigorate its role on the global stage? To find out more, let's go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis. 
John, if last week's Belt and Road Forum told us anything, it's that despite recent issues, China still wants to play a role on the global stage. The leading role, in fact, of an alternative bloc to the West. Never mind that its hands are full with a property crisis, with a stumbling economy, or that its Belt and Road initiative has garnered some charges of China being labeled an irresponsible lender. China sees the big infrastructure project as a big success, and Russian President Vladimir Putin agrees. I caught up with Daniel Tenkate, Bloomberg Asia EcoGov executive editor, and asked him how she and Putin used the BRI to move forward. First, from the perspective of Vladimir Putin. China is a safe space for him to show that he's still embraced by countries, particularly in the global south. You know, he needs that diplomatic support to fight the isolation that the U.S. and, and its allies are trying to impose on, on Putin. For Xi, he sees Russia as a key diplomatic partner, a way to fight back against uh, the U.S. worldview and U.S. rules. And this is particularly in the context of, of Taiwan. Bloomberg's Dan Tenkate. Well, Alan Wong, Bloomberg China EcoGov editor, joins us uh, for a little bit more in the way of insights on where China goes next. Alan, thanks very much for being with us. So I'm wondering, in the coming week, might we see more efforts by China to mediate in some way in the Israel-Hamas conflict? China has always been trying to play the role of the peacemaker. Uh, it has proposed some sort of peace conference between Palestine and Israel for many decades uh, without great success. Uh, and uh, it will try to say things that uh, uh, signal its intention to be the mediator, but uh, based on our experience, that's unlikely to go very far. But China wants to position itself as a country that could bring rivals together, unlike uh, the U.S., yet one of China's greatest uh, diplomatic achievements in recent years is helping broker a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and uh, it's definitely going to try to do the same thing again, if it can, between the Palestinians and Israelis. But then that's extremely unlikely because it has tried to do the same uh, over the last couple of decades with no success. We know that the two heads of state had in-depth discussions, uh, some of which was very private, uh, and obviously they both made speeches. Uh, do we know um, how they are approaching uh, the idea of anything together in the Middle East? I mean, China has for decades framed itself as an ally of the Palestinian people. This, these ties go back many decades and uh, uh, back to the, um, the Mao era, though it has moderated somewhat in the recent years. It will not change its position on on their sympathy, and uh, but uh, in terms of what uh, Xi and Putin can really do on the ground, I don't think there's much they can beyond rhetoric. And uh, the most that China would say right now at this stage is that they want both parties to come to the negotiating table and stop any hostilities. But realistically, there really isn't much that China would do. Or I mean, there's no reason for China to pressure Putin to persuade its proxies uh, or, or Iran to pressure uh, Hezbollah to reduce its support for Hamas. I mean, this is unlikely, and this will also undercut uh, the China-Russia partnership. We talked a little bit about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, as part of China setting up institutions uh, to stand up to the West, primarily to the United States. Uh, in your view, how, how successful has China been in building up some of these uh, institutions, including BLI and including uh, BRICS and others? 
Um, the BLI is a loose network of bilateral trade agreements and infrastructure projects, and it's never been formalized as like a centralized institution. In fact, people dispute over uh, what really counts as the BRI projects, and then there are projects that uh, predate the BRI that are now counted as BRI projects. So that goes to show that it's not a very organized investment scheme. But then there, there, there are attempts by China for its part to try to turn it into something more institutionalized. For example, in in the summit this week, uh, Xi Jinping announced the launch of a secretariat. Uh, we don't have any details about what it's going to do, but it sounds like one step in formalizing the the BRI uh, initiative. Going forward, uh, something that is, I suppose, not exactly part of BRI, but uh, the the power of Siberia to the gas pipeline uh, that is supposed to bring gas from uh, from Russia into China. A little bit of progress there, probably. We know that Putin and Xi spoke on the sideline, and then this is a great opportunity for them to talk uh, to hash out the details of those deals and. Uh, the pipeline itself is a win-win uh, solution for both China, which is in need of uh, energy, and for Putin, which is in need of someone to buy the oil and gas. So uh, I, I can't see why it wouldn't move forward more uh, briskly after this. Earlier, I asked Dan Tenkate about what he saw as the main issues in the China-Russia partnership. Fundamentally, they have different views on the world. Putin has been known as sort of a, a rule breaker, someone who is not scared to militarily get involved in Syria. You know, we saw what happened in Ukraine. Mm. That put China in a very awkward position. China and Xi in particular still very much wants to be part of the global system and see itself as one of the leaders of the world that has some respect. And Alan, your thoughts on those issues? Um, there's external pressure uh, on China to distance itself from Russia, which is unlikely because China has declared a no limits friendship, a partnership with Russia, and has reaffirmed it uh, over time despite the Ukraine invasion. We know that lots of EU leaders uh, shunned the Belt and Road Forum this week because of this position that Beijing has taken. But China knows this cost uh, well and uh, deliberately went ahead with it and giving Putin the platform in the great hall of the people. So it knows what it's doing. And uh, for, for the time being, there's no reason for China to change its uh, friendship or partnership with Russia. Yeah. In fact, Xi Jinping uh, hailed the profound friendship between China and Russia and his personal friendship with Putin. Uh, whom he has met dozens of times in the last 10 years, and uh, that's not going to change. Now, China would say that it's the U.S. that is the aggressor and that um, the military, the size, and, uh, and the fact that the United States has kind of uh, helped design the world order for so many years since the Second World War, uh, that, that that is one of the reasons why this kind of loose grouping of a block to stand up against the West exists. Um, but, you know, we look back at the block that used to be the Soviet Union, and in, in essence, it bankrupted itself trying to stand up to the West. Is there any danger that China is going down that road as well? The pandemic and the economic slowdown in China are hurting China's ability to find money to land to its uh, developing country partners. But um, the bigger problem here is that those partners are finding it harder to borrow money because of the interest rate environment and also because of the impact of the pandemic on the domestic economies. 
the greatest threat, I think, will come from the, the, the developing world's inability to continue to grow economically, not uh, on China's ability to lend money, really. And um, China also is smart enough that it's no longer pursuing the kind of big infrastructure projects that Belt and Road Initiative was initially known for. And uh, it is kind of pivoting to a small is beautiful strategy this year, uh, focusing on smaller projects that are more uh, efficient, uh, that are better, you know, investments uh, instead of flashy new airport railroads. Alan, thank you for joining us. Alan Wong, Bloomberg China EcoGov Editor. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis. And just ahead here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we'll head to London and get a European perspective on the Middle East conflict. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. There are fresh concerns that Israel's war with Hamas will spark a bigger conflict in the Middle East. European leaders, including UK's Rishi Sunak and Germany's Olaf Scholz, have tried to exert influence in the region to contain the conflict. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. John, there are now not one but two major wars that have broken out in the past two years that threaten global stability. For the European perspective, I've been speaking to Jane Kinnanmont, Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network. I began by asking Jane Kinnamont about what form she thinks the ground war might take between Israel and Hamas and what to expect next from the Israeli authorities. I mean, Israel's made it clear that it wants to launch a ground invasion and also that there will be a high price both for the Palestinians in Gaza and for Israel. Uh, there are there's a lot of underground tunnels in Gaza where Hamas is likely to fight. So it would be a conflict where Israel's military superiority from the air might not help it that much. Um, but also a lot of uncertainty exists because Israel's endgame is not entirely certain. You know, it doesn't mm. know 
because this Hamas attack, it was a complete strategic shock. Many people had warned that there would be some kind of explosion of violence as a result of the neglect of the Palestinian issue and the lack of peaceful avenues for Palestinians to take their cause forward. But the predictions were more centering around um, escalation in the West Bank or in Jerusalem. And Israel and many of its partners felt that it had Hamas contained, you know, and that it understood that threat and had yes. ways to manage it. So now Netanyahu's strategy towards Hamas has been upended and Israel does not have a clear replacement strategy. They say that they want to destroy Hamas, but they don't necessarily know that they can do it. But the bigger question still is what comes after? You know, one option might be for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. Uh, not that that would be legal under international law, but in terms of the military and political options, that's something being considered. But it's not something they strategically want to do. Okay. Well, then give me the European perspective. I mean, we've had the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visit Ursula von der Leyen also, and she um, made a speech yesterday that that seemed to have some of the uh, similar sorts of lines around democracy. And Macron, I mean, Europe has so struggled, you know, the traditional view of Europe is that it struggles with foreign policy because there are so many countries. What is the European perspective now? That's very much the issue is that European governments have got very different perspectives, you know, beyond the fact they all agree there should be a two-state solution, but they don't know how to get there. With Ukraine, we've seen Europe being united to an unusual degree, and that has meant that von der Leyen has emerged as more of a foreign policy leader than her position normally warrants. But actually, in Europe, there has been a backlash against her taking the lead uh, over Israel and Palestine because her expression of solidarity with Israel has tended to come without uh, the, the kinds of points that President Biden is making about the legitimate aspirations of Palestinians to a state and the need to respect their rights. And so we've seen really different noises coming out from different European governments, with some saying we should cut all aid to the Palestinians. And in a, you know, far to the other end example, there's been a minister in Spain who has said that Netanyahu should be tried for war crimes. So getting a coherent European position together is an issue. So that was Jane Kinnamont, the Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network for the European Perspective on the Conflict in the Middle East. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. John. Thanks, Caroline. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker. Stay with us. Top stories, global business headlines are coming up right now. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.